keep those California Indians down. Hello, everyone. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. For Marcus Lopez, I'm your host, Larry Smith. You still have played a heavy hand for decades in the creation of disability within Native community. And shame on Biden and his administration and anyone who supports him for thinking that merely signing a proclamation somehow is right for Native people, especially our disabled Native people. Today on American Indian Airwaves, the contradictions of President Biden's Indigenous Peoples Day and Columbus Day proclamations, how Indigenous Peoples Day becomes performative while remaining highly under-resourced, and the intersections of disability justice and Indigenous and environmental activism. All that and more here on American Indian Airwaves. You can hear when the moon shines bright, the lone And before we begin our featured story here on American Indian Airwaves, we want to remind listeners that American Indian Airwaves broadcasts on KPFK and KPFK is in fun drive mode and requires your assistance. We ask that you support KPFK in a variety of ways. One way to support the station is to become a KPFK Sustainer Circle member by visiting the kpfk.org website and clicking on the pledge widget and making monthly dollar donations in denominations of your choice. Or you can pick up as our thank you gift here on American Indian Airwaves, Red Nation Rising from Border Town Violence to Native Liberation with a variety of contributory authors from Nick Estes, Melanie Yazi, Jennifer Denatedale, and David Correa. The book is $100, it's a thank you gift, And this is the first book ever to investigate and explain the violent dynamics of border towns. Border towns are white-dominated towns and cities that operate according to the same political and spatial logics as all other American towns and cities. The difference being that these settlements get their names from the location at the borders of current day reservation boundaries which separate the territory of sovereign indigenous nations from lands claimed by the United States. It's a $100 thank you item and we ask that listeners of American Indian Airwaves and supporters of KPFK help support the station in this time of need and become a KPFK Sustainer Circle member, or pick up the brand new book, Red Nation Rising, From Border Town Violence to Native Liberation. You can visit the kpfkwebsite.org, or you can call 818-985-5735 or 818-985-KPFK. 
And now our featured story here on American Indian Airwaves, where we focus on the contradictions of President Biden's Indigenous Peoples Day and Columbus Day proclamations, how Indigenous Peoples Day becomes performative while Indigenous communities and nations remain highly under-resourced, and the intersections of disability justice, Indigenous, and environmental activism. Our guest for the first part of today's show is Jen Dierenwater, who's a citizen of the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma, bisexual, two-spirit, multiply disabled journalist, speaker, and organizer who covers the issues her communities face with an intersectional lens. She's a contributor at Truth Out and founding executive director of Crushing Colonialism. Jen is also the co-editor of Sacred and Subversive, and her work is included in anthologies such as Disability Visibility and Two Spirits Belong Here. I start the interview asking her thoughts on President Biden's recent signing of the proclamations for Indigenous Peoples Day and Columbus Day. So, yeah, I have many thoughts on this particular topic. You know, obviously, I don't support Columbus Day. It shouldn't exist. I would like to see us have the day recognized as Indigenous Peoples Day. But my biggest concern is that with, with Indigenous Peoples Day, it becomes quite performative. Um, you know, I, I reached the point a couple years back where I would just get hit you know, late September, early October by editors wanting a piece on Indigenous Peoples Day. But the rest of the year, I wouldn't really hear from them, except, you know, maybe Thanksgiving. And after a while, it was like, you know, are you actually interested in having Indigenous journalists cover topics related to indigeneity, or do you just want to feel like you can check a box off? And that's kind of where I have started to land with Indigenous Peoples Day, is that it feels like we are we're such an under-resourced community. And then here we are trying to get the government, whether it's, you know, municipal, state, county, feds, to recognize Indigenous Peoples Day. To me, it doesn't seem like the best use of our highly limited resources. It also, for me, feels a bit like, eh, at the end of the day, what did this do for us? And as a disabled person, when I, as a disabled Native person, when I saw that Biden had signed this proclamation, the first thing I thought was, well, how nice, give us our land back. That's immediately what I thought. What a lovely gesture. Now give us our land back. Stop the pipelines. You know, uh, when Biden got elected, for me, I didn't look at him and go, oh, break, this will be so wonderful. We're going to get our rights. To me, it was like, well, he's a little better than Trump, but not by a whole lot. You know, look, look at what has happened to our people out fighting line three, you know, getting shot, getting terrorized, getting arrested, getting abused in all of these different ways. If folks out there didn't already have illnesses or disabilities, you better believe they do now. I think about all the people that I interviewed from Standing Rock from that battle who, um, you know, they now have all kinds of worsened health conditions or new conditions and disabilities. So for me, yeah, yeah, hey, great, you signed a proclamation. It's for one year. Big deal. You still have played a heavy hand for decades in the creation of disability within Native community. Mm -hmm. And shame on Biden 
and his administration and anyone who supports him for thinking that merely signing a proclamation somehow is right for Native people, especially our disabled Native people. Jen, we know that according to the 2010 U.S. Census Bureau, approximately one out of every four Native people are disabled. And of course, the census is uh, faulty. We know it underreports Indigenous peoples or, or misreports Indigenous peoples. It doesn't include uh, Indigenous peoples that are from elsewhere that now call the politically defined borders of the United States home. But your thoughts on uh, indigenous activism and disability justice and how they intersect with each other. I want to start by saying I actually just had an article come out yesterday with Truth Out on some research that I've been working on for a year now, looking at the intersections of um, how the climate crisis and environmental degradation is impacting deaf, disabled, and chronically ill indigenous people on a global level. So I actually talk about some of these things I'm going to get into in in that particular article. Almost a year's worth of research, which of course one news article doesn't even come close to, to carrying all of that work, but you know, it didn't seem to matter what part of the world I looked at. Indigenous people had significantly higher rates of disabilities or chronic illnesses than the non-Indigenous people who were living in those areas. You know, here in the so-called U.S., it's, you know, about 24% of those of us who are considered American Indian and Alaskan Native. And I say considered because that is not the terms that we created for ourselves. These are colonial terms. Uh, but for just the specifics of data collection, I, I want to make sure that I'm being clear. It's those that are American Indian or Alaskan Native. About 24% of us are living with a disability. And that's the highest disability rate of any other ethnic or racial group per capita in this country. And, you know, in looking at my research, what I saw time and time again also rang true to a lot of my own lived experience as a disabled Native person in that it's not necessarily bad genes. It's colonialism that has led us here. It is a lack of health care. Uh, forget about high quality health care. It's just a lack of health care. It's the pollution and thefts of our lands. It's the intergenerational and historical trauma. You know, there's a lot of medical research coming out now that says that long-term trauma creates long-term chronic inflammation. And chronic inflammation creates a lot of illnesses like diabetes or heart disease or, you know, I have a form of an autoimmune arthritis. You know, so a lot of these illnesses and disabilities we have are absolutely a result of the genocide that we're still facing. And I found this to be the case everywhere I looked in this research. And, you know, with this particular article that I'm talking about, you know, I was looking specifically at climate crisis and environmental degradation, but it really, it was a lot of the same things being heard. You know, I kept hearing the same stories from the people I interviewed, or I kept you know, sort of seeing the same stories and the data I was analyzing was, well, people are going hungry. They, you know, food, their traditional foods have been taken from them. There's a higher reliance on things like soda or, or other canned or bottled beverages because the, the water is not clean or they just don't have running water. You know, so it's, it's really, you know, we have these high rates because of the things that have been done to us and are still being done to us. And unfortunately, you know, 
I, I really feel as a disabled person and as a native that I am erased from many conversations. I am erased from public view. And I really feel that as a disabled native. And I feel that a lot within native community. And I have started speaking out more on it, including in a public way. You know, for a very long time, I did what I think a lot of Native people do, at least in this country. You know, we, we see something wrong, we see something that's upsetting, but we don't complain. For whatever reason, we just don't complain, we don't speak up. And I, I am one of those people. For a very long time, I saw, I saw ways in which I was being excluded, whether it's because I'm queer or because I'm disabled, uh, from Native community, including from my own tribe and my tribal government. But I felt like I wasn't supposed to speak up. I was just supposed to suffer in silence. And I don't know, I'm just so fed up with being told I'm supposed to suffer in silence. And there's something extra painful about having your own communities not fully be there for you. And so that's a big part of why I've started doing the work that I do, like speaking out about all these intersections of things like disability and, and ableism and, you know, colonialism and, and so on. One of the things when we talk about disabilities, a lot of times people need some type of physical sign to cue them that a person is quote unquote disabled. And I was wondering if maybe you could speak to that in relationship to the work that you're doing and your lived experiences uh, yourself and uh, with other uh, community members and supporters? Mm -hmm. Well, the first thing I want to start with is that uh, almost half of disabled people have an invisible disability. And I, up until my pain and mobility reached the point that I had to start using a cane, I was one of those people. If you didn't see my surgical scars, or you didn't hear me talking about it, you wouldn't have known how many health problems I had and how much agonizing pain I was in. And there was a lot of reasons that I didn't talk about it. I hid it because disabled women are disproportionately targeted with violence. You know, I am a domestic violence and a rape survivor. You know, so for me, that was, that was a safety strategy. I don't want the world knowing I'm disabled because this is part of what keeps me alive. It was also, you know, issues of discrimination within employment and, and career opportunities. You know, I worked in and out of politics and particularly with the Democratic Party for quite some time. And the ableism I saw in that world, I just said to myself, if I come out as disabled, I will never get a job again. And at that point in my life, I was also really considering running for office. And I thought, if they know I'm disabled, they won't support me as a candidate. And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Jen Dierenwater, a citizen of the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma, who's speaking on the contradictions of President Biden's Indigenous Peoples Day and Columbus Day proclamations, how Indigenous Peoples Day becomes performative while Indigenous communities remain highly under-resourced and the intersections of disability justice and Indigenous and environmental activism. And now back to the interview. You know, it's already hard enough being Native and queer and a woman, and, and now I'm disabled. You know, so I want people to, to remember when we talk about disabilities that, one, disabilities are just as vast. They are just as broad and diverse as indigeneity is. They're all different. We all have different needs, different access needs, different ways that we live our lives, different forms of discrimination that we encounter. But 
a lot of us are not being seen and we're not being seen because it's just not safe. Mm. You know, we hide these things. And then I think with an indigenous community, which, you know, depends on the tribe, depends on the people, words like disabled may not exist. You know, there may be different terms, different concepts, but the way that we think about disability within these colonial ideas is very different than the way maybe our ancestors thought about that. Unfortunately, though, we do have a lot of ableism within Native community, at least in the so-called U.S. You know, I look at some of the, the frontline actions, frontline environmental community, and, you know, I have love for them and the way they put their lives on the line, but I'm also really hurt and really disgusted with how disabled people are so often excluded. And, and when I say excluded, I don't mean that there aren't individuals there who have disabilities, because there are, there absolutely are. And if they went into those, those frontline movement work without disabilities, they're definitely coming out with trauma and, and, and things going on now. <laughs> you know, that's, that's the other thing. The lives that we have to live so that we can keep fighting for our people often leads to us having illnesses and disabilities. But the point I was trying to, to get at is uh, there's no talk about disability justice. Right. There's no talk about even, even access. Basic disability access is not even discussed. You know, if I can't even get in the door at your event, then that tells me this is not a community that I'm valued in, that I'm welcome in. And I encounter that a lot, whether it's, you know, trying to go to the tribal embassy office in D.C. or the gaming association headquarters. It's a beautiful building, but it is absolutely inaccessible if you have mobility issues. You know, so from those things to doing frontline environmental work, you know, I'm looking at some actions that are occurring now. There's no disability access information for anything, let alone conversations about, you know, we are talking about disability and its connection to the climate crisis. You know, so there's just, there's so many reasons why people may not see those of us who are disabled. And it, it typically boils down to ableism and how ableism intersects with perhaps other marginalized identities. But, you know, with that said, I think what I try to tell people when we talk about access and such is that we need to get away from this idea of, well, the disabled will come to us and tell us what they need. Because oftentimes we're just not going to. You know, I'm, I'm exhausted. I am in horrible pain. I'm worn down. I work a lot. I'm constantly dealing with medical appointments and fighting with the government over my Medicare and Social Security and stuff. I don't have the energy to hound able-bodied people to make their, their work accessible for me. And, and like I said, if you didn't think about that from the get-go, that just tells me that I don't matter to you and I'm not really wanted in your space. So we need to just start reaching the point where we're making disability access a priority, that we're recognizing that access is way more than just is this building ADA compliant, and that we're not even just talking about access, but we're talking about disability justice and the way that ableism is hurting our indigenous people. Would uh, the characterization of maybe, because we're using 
the English language and so much of uh, Western s- systems of thinking or knowledge production is uh, or epistemologies are rooted in binary constructions. So when we use these terms like disabled and ableism, they have both uh, negative and adverse connotations where just uh, indigenous peoples traditionally would be community members based on who they are and through that cultural lens. Would that be uh, a fair characterization? And you mentioned health, and I, I wonder about the trust responsibility between the federal government and treating nations and providing health care like Indian health services. And how does that work in conversation with disability justice? Mm-hmm. So I think I want to start by saying that I am in the early stages of doing research in terms of what disability looked like for our indigenous ancestors pre-white invasions. Mm-hmm. And, and because we're all different, you know, what, what one tribal nation may have behaved as is not going to be the same as another. So I don't really feel that I am qualified to fully answer that question. I would just say that we're all different and perhaps some of our nations from what I'm seeing had better ideals and better inclusion of disabled community members or, or those we would now consider disabled and others from what I'm finding, not so much. Mm. So I'm still in the early stages of that research. So yes, there is absolutely a trust and treaty responsibility that the United States government has to our tribal nations. And that trust and treaty responsibility covers a wide range of the needs of disabled people. You know, this includes housing, it includes roads, it includes internet access and cell phone access. You know, it includes employment, health care. I mean, there are so many things that impact the daily lives of people living with disabilities. You know, I, I was, I've done some, some different events with the disability community also trying to highlight like, hey, y'all are leaving Native people behind and that's not okay. Um, just kind of like I'm trying to go to able-bodied Natives and be like, you're leaving your disabled relatives behind. And so something I said in a call that I had with some, some Hill staffers was uh, we, were, we were talking about paratransit for disabled people across the U.S. And I, I said, you know, paratransits, our paratransit programs across the country are really horrible and they need to be fixed. But think about in rural lands and native lands, if there aren't even roads, you can't possibly have paratransit. You know, so these are just a few examples of how the government has a really robust trust and treaty responsibility to us that impacts every aspect of our daily lives that they are not meeting. But I will also say with that, while I understand our tribal governments are, are very under-resourced and, and you know, probably quite stressed out and I would never want to be on tribal council, it seems like a pretty horrible job to me. Um, but, you know, our tribal governments are not stepping up and doing right. You know, things that could easily be made accessible, like I I will hold my tribe accountable right here, Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma, our at-large voting process for tribal elections has disenfranchised many disabled and chronically ill, as well as low-income people, because up until our most recent election, we had to go out to, we had to go to a notary republic mm. and sign our ballot in front of the notary republic. Well, what wow. if you can't leave your home? 
what if you don't have the money for a notary republic? You know, I mean, and the only, honestly, I think the only reason they lifted it this year was because of COVID, which also made me feel, it, it felt bittersweet. Like, okay, great, you've changed this. However, I don't think you're doing this because you care about your disabled citizens. I think you're doing this because suddenly it was more difficult for the abled to vote. And that, that's a very common feeling that a lot of us in disability community have had with, you know, the rise of things like telemedicine, telework, you know, distance learning. You know, these are all things that many of us have been saying, we need this. We have structures and systems in place that can support it, but we would just be told time and time again, we can't do it. And this is one of the other ways in which disabled people have lower rates of employment is just not having basic access needs met. But once COVID hit and suddenly the abled needed to be able to distance work or distance learn, then it happened. And that's a little bit how I feel about my own nation in terms of our at-large voting process. And Cherokee Nation is a really large tribe. You know, we have well over 100,000 at-large tribal citizens. You know, you can't even say, oh, it's only 5,000 people, not that that would be acceptable. But there's a lot of us. And so the federal government has responsibilities to us, but our own tribal governments have responsibilities to us. And there are things they could be doing that they're just not doing. And I also think about, um, uh, you know, the two-thirds to three-fourths of indigenous peoples, you know, like myself and others uh, who live away from their traditional homelands, right? And then, so what does, you, you know, disability justice look like for a lot of other indigenous peoples? And maybe your thoughts on that. And then where do you see the direction, um, the convergence and the intersectionality, if you will, of um, disability justice, this idea of transformative justice, but also just uh, the justice done to protect not only the treaties, but Mother Earth for future generations. So you're right. So, so many of us do live away from our traditional homelands, uh, and there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, we know there's the 1950s termination era, which moved many of our, our people into urban and suburban areas. You know, we leave home for school. We leave home for medical care. You know, I need very specialized care that I can't get just anywhere in this country. So, you know, because of that, there, there's very few places I can live. And that also kind of ties into the environment in which, you know, I have to sit and look at places like, you know, where is there more flooding? Where are there more droughts? What are the temperature, temperatures looking like? Air quality looking like? You know, where I can live, is, it's kind of slim pickings these days. And I, I can't live back home in Oklahoma. It's just simply not a choice for me. So for me, disability justice it means fighting for my rights where I currently live. You know, I push back on the local D.C. government, just like I push on the federal government. Um, you know, so it's fighting for my rights here. It's fighting for my rights to high-quality, culturally competent, respectful health care, for transportation, housing, food, all of those things. But it's also pushing back on my tribe back home being like, hey, I know I don't live there, but I'm still your citizen and I should be able to vote in my elections. <laughs> so it's, it is that kind of back and forth. And I also see that as, you know, yes, I'm fighting for myself, but I'm fighting for other people like me. Mm -hmm. I'm fighting for the younger me who didn't have, didn't have that sense of self-worth, didn't have 
or didn't have the right tools or the right language or the ability to stand up and fight back. So I also see this as like, maybe I'm not back home, but I am still fighting for my people back home, just like I'm fighting for natives where I live now and elsewhere. And, you know, in terms of that environmental piece, like, it, it's crucial. We are running out of places that we can live in this country. It's going to become really bad in the next 20 to 30 years. Like, it's already bad now, but this is just the tip of the quickly melting iceberg. And if we don't get to a point where we're talking about the issues of the environment and the climate crisis in an intersectional way, which includes disabled people, specifically disabled indigenous people, then we are going to lose many many of our relatives and this COVID pandemic is one great example of how the climate crisis can impact us. You know, this is not the first nor is it the last pandemic that many of us are going to see in our lifetimes, you know, quite likely as a result of the climate crisis. And, you know, we've seen with COVID our most vulnerable community members, you know, whether houseless, you know, already disabled and so forth. These are the people who are going to typically get sick and die. You know, we look at climate crises events like Hurricane Katrina. The overwhelming majority of people who died during that had a disability. You know, I, I, I sit and live in a lot of fear of, you know, what would happen to me? Would I just sit in my apartment and die slowly without food or water or power? You know, the, these are real fears. And, and uh, we have to start addressing them and we have to start having our, all of our people at the table and at the table in a meaningful way, not just as a token, but in a meaningful way where we really sit and listen to each other and we do this work together because it's the only way we're going to survive. It's just, it's it. It's the only way we're going to make it through is if we come together and really work together. And that was Jen Dearenwater speaking on the contradictions of President Biden's Indigenous Peoples Day and Columbus Day proclamations, how Indigenous Peoples Day becomes performative while Indigenous communities remain highly under-resourced and the intersections of disability justice, environmental activism, and Indigenous activism. She's a longtime citizen of the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma, bisexual, two-spirit, multiplied, disabled journalist, speaker, and organizer who covers the issues her communities face with an intersectional lens. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves, and if you appreciate the work and the voices that we bring here over the airwaves on KPFK, we ask that you support KPFK in several ways. One, you can become a monthly KPFK Sustainer Circle member by visiting the kpfk.org website and clicking on the KPFK Donate widget and making a monthly donation in a dollar denomination of your choice. Or you can pick up this brand new book. It's a $100 premium item titled Red Nation Rising from Border Town Violence to Native Liberation. The book marks the effort to tell the entangled stories and inspire a new generation of Native freedom fighters to return to their border towns, to their traditional homelands, as key front lines in the long struggle for Indigenous liberation from U.S. colonial control. 
The book is Red Nation Rising from Border Town Violence to Native Liberation. It's a $100 thank you gift that you can get by visiting the kpfk.org website or calling 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK. After the short music break, we're going to hear from two out of the four contributing authors of Red Nation Rising from Border Town Violence to Native Liberation. And now a short music break here on American Indian Airwaves, the song Keep My Memory by Alexis Rayana featuring Charlie Lowry.
keep my memory. The song Keep My Memory by Alexis Rihanna featuring Charlie Lowry here on American Indian Airwaves. In the final segment of today's program here on American Indian Airwaves, we're going to hear from two out of the four contributory authors of the brand new book, Red Nation Rising from Border Town Violence to Native Liberation. We are offering this book as a thank you item as part of the KPFK Fall Fund Drive. We ask that longtime listeners and supporters of American Indian Airwaves and KPFK continue to support the station during its fall fund drive. There are several ways you can support. You can visit the kpfk.org website and click on the donate widget or pledge widget and become a KPFK monthly sustainer circle member by making monthly dollar donations of your choice, or you can pick up Red Nation Rising by calling 818-985-KPFK, 818-985-5735, or you can visit the kpfk.org website and click on the pledge widget and scroll down to the item, Red Nation Rising, from Border Town Violence to Native Liberation. Marcus? Red Nation's Rising from Border Town Violence to Native Liberation And the subtext of that is the Border Town Violence Working Group, which is this part they're part of. And Larry, what's so interesting about this book is that not only is it like Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz talks about how this is an important organizing manual, I look at it as a sense of important thinking manual as far as how do we think about our reality. It talks about space. It talks about capitalism. It talks about settler colonialism. It talks about these different things that we have been addressing over the decades. But one refreshing thing about it, Larry, and to our listeners, it's new, brand new. And it talks about recent situations all the way from land to culture, all the way from language to religion, all the way from the beginning of these United States to our present situation where the reservation system, and they have a section of it called off-reservation, and they talk about, and I think this is interesting for Southern California and for our listeners throughout the United States and Mexico and Canada, in that many of the Native peoples, Indigenous peoples, live in urban areas now. And because of that, they give a little description of that, of why this occurred. And one of the things that the indigenous people in California need to understand is how the non how the indigenous population got to Southern California first place, number one. Secondly, not to ignore the recent history of California, but also an important point and I want to point this out to our listeners, which are loyal, which want to hear about not only the struggles but solutions. And this book gives you some solutions. The solutions are talking about the notion of liberation, native liberation, as they describe it. And what does that mean to you? What does that mean to the listeners? What does it mean to, you know, all these different activities throughout its recent history from Standing Rock all into to today talks about supporting native peoples. And we're seeing that supporting many, many native peoples is about taking Uh, not only a nice soft chair or a couch or a position from a comfortable position, 
but going out and to reviewing the, this book, to reviewing this particular gift that we offer to you by pledging $100, and to realize this native liberation for your native people living in Southern California and all the different urban areas. It's a book in which you can read. It's very palatable. In other words, it's easy read. It's a book for your study group throughout our airways. And you can use this book in order to bring up the different topic. One of the topics that I think is important is property relations. And that property relations, it goes into that, a snippet of that. And I think the books that we have before talking about that, but yet this is so important that it provides the native person in the urban area that are away from their quote-unquote homeland and to realize what now capitalism and what that means and where we have to realize that this is the obstacle, this is the, the wall, this is the structure, this is the, the laws, means, the prisons, all that that we talked about in our previous fundraising books, the Global Police State. It talks about these different things in a way it's understandable, Larry, in a way it brings up some issues that might not be too, too comfortable, but issues nevertheless. And some people might say, well, this is way out. This is way out there. And this is why we bring it to you, our listeners, because we know that you, you want a book that describes these features that no one is going to describe in a way that it is a reflection of Native life. True to form, though, it's not a cultural book. It's a political book talks about culture, talks about land, talks about language, talks about healing, talks about these different things in order for you to get a grasp on our space. And this, this, the notion of space is in there, but I wanted to say this. Space and our sense of what is our reality. So pick up the phone, 818-985-5735. That's 818-985-KPFK. And if you are on the computer listen to this, you can go to our, the KPFK website, kpfk.org, kpfk.org. Go to American Indian Airways, Red Nations Rising, From Border Town Violence to Native Liberation. A gift from us, American Indian Airways, to you all. Larry. Thank you, Marcus. Absolutely. Uh, the book is, again, it's brand new. It's Red Nation Rising from Bordertown Violence to Native Liberation. It's It has four co-authors, both indigenous and non-indigenous. It's a phenomenal read. It's powerful. It's informative. And it's empowering. And we want to remind listeners that, yes, this is a $100 thank you premium item here on American Indian Airwaves and KPFK. But again, if that if it's beyond your financial means to support, if it's just a little too much in its cost, we want to encourage listeners to also visit the kpfk.org website and become a KPFK Sustainer Circle member by simply making monthly dollar donations of your choice. And so that is another way to help support uh, the work that we do here on American Indian Airwaves and help support the work that Pacifica's KPFK continues to do after over 50 years in public media. And again, you know, we want to remind listeners that 
uh, you know, for those of you that are out there in the podcasting world, even the podcasting industry has slowly become an oligopoly, and and there are just uh, a handful of companies slowly dominating the podcasting industry. And if you are a podcaster out there listening to us, you know, on one of those streaming platforms that. It shows like ours and the marginalized and unheard voices that we bring to American Indian Airways are the exact kind of voices and perspectives that you cannot hear even out there in the podcasting world. So we want to reach out and connect with all of you that uh, that listen to us, um, you know, via podcasting as well as on radio or as well as uh, streaming on the kpfk.org website. Again, the book is Red Nation Rising from Border Town Violence to Native Liberation. It's co-authored uh, by four authors, native and non-native. It's a phenomenal read. Uh, it's empowering. Again, it's informative. Again, every chapter in the book contains a numerous and variety of topics uh, related to the forms of settler colonial violence in the book ends, right, in talking about indigenous liberation. In fact, the authors contend that when they speak of liberation, meaning we meaning them, we mean a desire to be free once and for all from the imposition of the United States on our lands, affairs, bodies, minds, spirits, and cultures. And that's a, a powerful quote from the book. And if you want to understand what that means, then we encourage you to pick up and read Red Nation Rising from Border Town Violence to Native Liberation. Again, call 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK, or you can visit the kpfk.org website and click on the KPFK Donate widget. You can pick up the book. You can become a KPFK Sustainer Circle member. You can do both. Or perhaps find another premium item on the KPFK item that you would like to pick up along with Red Nation Rising. And Marcus, we want to remind listeners that they're listening to American Indian Airwaves, and we'd like to play the second segment of part two of our interview with two of the four contributing authors of Red Nation Rising, From Border Town Violence to Native Liberation. We'll hear from Jennifer Dale and David Correa. Jennifer Dale is Professor of American Studies at the University of New Mexico, and she serves as the chair of the Navajo Nation Human Rights Commission, and David Correa is an Associate Professor of American Studies at the University of New Mexico. He organizes with Abolish APD, a research collective focused on confronting the violence of the Albuquerque Police Department and committed to the abolition of police as we know it. And now the second segment of part two of Red Nation Rising from Border Town Violence to Native Liberation. But you you also, um, in this section of the book, you link in discussing or expressing um, uh, the reflective problematics uh, and, and the clarification or terms and meanings of human rights, you link it to the decolonial document of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous yeah. Peoples, right? Right. And how right. And, and how that is such uh, an important tool, and it's something that uh, we've certainly covered since uh, September 13th of 2007. 
here on the right, sh- right. Uh, on the show. So I think that's an uh, an important connection that you make in the book. Yeah, right. I mean, I, I guess that's what I meant by it's been hijacked, right? Yeah. So, so you know, undrip is, was a way to sort of like take that back, and right. and so the rights, you know, in front of undrip were an effort to, to number one, let's unmoor all rights from the individual, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, the the human rights is about human rights, right? There aren't rights to nature, there aren't rights to relations among people in nature, people in places, right? the, the, the right not to be severed one, from one's homeland right. um, isn't found in any sort of liberal notion of human rights. And so we do mm-hmm. bring up UNDRIP as a way to sort of highlight that there's another way to think about this. It's not one that has much institutional um, uh, history in the Western world. And yet, as we do throughout the book, I mean, the book is as much about the resistance to the border town as it is about border, the border town. So we, there, there are plenty of examples and illustrations of ways that um, that others have confronted this because we're not obviously in any way the first um, we are you know basically building on the work of, of everyone who's gone before us on this issue and we're trying to do that and, and UNDRIP is a perfect example of that I mean Roxanne Dunbar-Tease was, was involved in that and I, you know she's one of my my mentors and and I look up to her as a, as a scholar and an activist and and you know learn from folks doing that kind of work, how to make that, how to distinguish between, right, the sort of reformist liberal concepts and the sort of more la- radical uh, definitions of those categories that, that we still have access to and, and we need to remind sometimes each other about. We want people to pick up the book and to read the book, but we want listeners to understand um, what they'll walk away with. And towards the end of the book, in chapters uh, seven, it's titled Burn the Village, but you have eight key concepts uh, and topics that you cover in chapter seven, um, you know, from abolition, kinship, which we discussed, solidarity, alliance, land, LGBTQI, to us, right? Sovereignty, decolonization, liberation, you know, topics that we've been discussing throughout the course of our interview. And then the book concludes with Don't Go Back to the Reservation, a Border Town Manifesto. And um, and as we wrap up uh, our discussion and talking about the, um, the brand new book, Red Nation Rising, uh, Jennifer, I'll start with you, is um, what do you, all of you mean? Uh, don't go back to the reservation, a Border Town Manifesto. You know, I, I think for me, the manifesto really is words of hope people could read this as as a critique, one that some people would take as, as negative. And yet, I think that we came together to work on this book out of hope and that a, a possibility of liberation and that in, envisioning it is really important. And so for me, work, that's what working on this book with my colleagues has meant to me. It's meant stretching and moving the limits of my understanding of moving my my critique and moving my my vision um, because we do write this book with hope david as you write in the book the um both the red nation social movement um and the really seeds of this book began in after the murders of, of uh, two navajo men in albuquerque about about six years ago and one of the things we did after that was we, we spent a lot of time on the streets talking to people, particularly unsheltered native folks. And we heard, I mean, I, I've 
personally, I've spent a lot of time doing street outreach and mutual aid on the streets and, and interviews, and um, I'd never heard anyone who wasn't Native say to me, you know, the, the thing that cops always yell at us is go back to the reservation. Mm. You know, every single person we talked to on the street, when we asked um, about the last encounter they had with a cop or, um, you know, they would include at some point a cop hollering at them, go back to the reservation. And, you know, we've seen that sort of pattern play out in other places too, it's not just in Albuquerque. And so that, that was one of the ways we started thinking about this spatially, which was why, why this insistence, why this consistent insistence mm. among police to just holler at Native unsheltered folks, go back to the reservation. Um, I mean, obviously, it's such an ingrained part of policing that we could just leave it at that and say it's just something they say, but I think it's something more because it goes beyond Albuquerque. And it really led to us thinking very specifically about about what it means to resist um, civil colonialism and how we would go about about doing it. And and I think it begins by recognizing, for us, you know, res- recognizing police as modern-day vigilantes and Indian killers. Um, who are whose job is to impose the order of, of, of settler society, and their, if their primary directive is to go back to the reservation, then that's the first thing that we have to oppose. Right? So we have to oppose that that particular sort of geographical mandate. And the, so the, the manifesto's title is really a confrontation, right? It, it's a, it's a you know it's a refusal. It's the first refusal of the many that come in the manifesto. Thank you both. I uh, appreciate the mm-hmm. book, um, you know, ending uh, on a positive note, you know, with a message of hope. And, you know, both of you are, are activists. Um, Jennifer, I know you're actively invol- involved in the community. Both of you are educators. And um, I was wondering if I could ask both of you as we close out the interview. And again, I'll start with you, Jennifer. Um, you know, we have a lot of Native and non-Native listeners Um but what's your your message uh, to the youth and and um, and I'll start with you, Jennifer, and then David, if if you can follow up, please. E, I don't know, Larry. Larry, what my message would be. I think my message would just be, you know, every as a as a Diné person, I have a lot of respect for our traditional knowledge and our traditional knowledge, our, our teachings is that. Every morning you go out and you you greet the morning, the dawn, and every day when the holy people come by, there's always a possibility. There's always that possibility of renewal of life, you know. And so, for me, that's what I wake up with every uh, almost every single morning of another day, you know. And I'm I'm thankful for for that. Um, and I think that that's something that Indigenous people appreciate. David? And, I, you know, one of the things that we're doing in the book is we're not trying to make a distinction. This is not a movement that's a, a Native-led movement, but it doesn't, it doesn't exclude non-Native people from... I mean, yeah, we can't, we, can't, we can't dismantle and destroy Southern colonialism without sort of this broad-based movement. And, and so I think the only, the only thing I would say is, is um, this kind of struggle requires real accountability. Um, and it's... And it's is that we don't need heroes and we don't need personalities. We need people who are willing to put in the work and be accountable to their comrades 
and commit to that. And and I've just learned the work on the ground, which is so hard. It's so difficult to do. But that, that accountability is the most important most important thing. And and it's I think for a lot of us, it's the way that we can really sort of get rid of this sort of notion of the individual as the center. We're not we can't be a group of individuals. We have to be accountable to something larger than us in this struggle. And and for for the the organizers and activists I I work with, we 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 can we can actually contribute to our our communities when we're accountable to each other and we can't when we're not so you know this book is really an effort for for the four of us as authors to really be accountable to each other for our communities Mm -hmm. this is these are our politics this is what we're after and this is how we think it should be done and we're committed to it and you can you can rely on and that's you know I, i think the the book the overall structure of the book too sort of serves to sort of embed that notion hopefully in the reader that there's a lot here. It's going to take more than a few of us to do. And, and all it takes is just a willingness to commit and be accountable to that work. The moment of silence is over. And that was Jennifer Denatedale and David Correa, two out of the four contributory authors of the brand new book, Red Nation Rising from Border Town Violence to Native Liberation. Here on American Indian Airwaves, we ask that you continue supporting the station and us here at American Indian Airwaves. You can pick up the book. It's a $100 premium item. You can call 818-985-KPFK or visit the kpfk.org website and pick up the book there. Or you can support the station by becoming a KPFK Monthly Sustainer Circle member by clicking on the pledge widget by making monthly donations in dollar denominations of your choice. And that concludes our show for today here at American Indian Airwaves. A special thank you to our guest, Jennifer Dierenwater and Jennifer Denadiel and David Correa. Special thank you to our musical guests, Aragon Star, Koopa, Ina, Alexis Rihanna, featuring Charlie Lowry and the band Blackfire. American Indian Airwaves is mixed and mastered in the studio of Burnt Swamp Studio in Signal Hill, California. For Marcus Lopez, I've been your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time. Silence is over.